Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Preet Banerjee, founder of Money Gaps. Preet is a well-known Canadian financial pundit who has recently expanded out into the creation of Money Gaps, a platform that helps advisors deliver financial planning advice and quantify that for their clients. And with that, here's my interview with Preet. Hello, Preet. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you again. Good to see you. Good. Thanks for coming the, what, two blocks from your from your place? Yeah, normally, but although I did come from Etobicoke. <laughs> yes, yeah. So you told me this time. So ironically, I live in Etobicoke, so it was kind of a cross. Oh, really? <laughs> we planned this perfectly. We did. So let me start <laughs> off by apologizing, Preet, that essentially I know, so for those of you who don't know Preet Banerjee, he's a well-known Canadian podcaster and uh, personality in the space. And his podcast, he's so kind as to treat all his guests to a selection of scotches. <laughs> I do not have that for fear of liability, this being my own office. Um, <laughs> so I apologize for the lack of scotch. Uh, but before we, so let's get started. Pre, uh, so Preep Energy founder of Money Gaps. Tell us about Money Gaps. Sure. Money Gaps is a hybrid advisor platform and it is designed to solve a very basic problem that I identified in some of my research looking into the value of financial advice. And it's basically this, not everybody wants a thick financial plan. But they don't want nothing. It, for the record, to my history, no one wants a 100-page financial plan. It's amazing. Like It's, it's, it's hilarious because I, I always give them a small 20-page executive summary and say, look, these five pages are what matter. Right. But if you want this giant 100-page plan, I will, I will give it to you. Three times I've been told to do that, three times they live regret, regret it. Right. <laughs> it's just yeah. too much. Exactly. So yeah. it's kind of like this binary proposition where it's full financial planning or nothing. Yeah. And there's this huge market in the middle where I think a lot of people want a light but financial planning focused experience mm -hmm. instead of just product sales or full-blown financial planning. And that's where Money Gaps comes in. So it's a hybrid advisor platform. It was designed B2B first. So it's designed first for financial advisors mm -hmm. to use with clients as opposed to something that was developed as a B2C model, like a lot of robo-advisors, mm -hmm. which then pivoted to B2C and offering their pro versions, yeah. which are fine. And over time, they're going to develop, and that's great. But I designed it specifically with the B2B mindset. Yeah. So you're not looking to be the one who delivers that financial advice. You're looking to be the one who enables that through your platform. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about the history of the creation of Money Gaps. And of course, you mentioned your research. So let's talk about uh, all the things you do. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the stuff that's relevant. Um, <laughs> about five years ago, there was a professor at Rotman who took me aside and said, hey, listen, you should think about the next phase of your career. You've done a lot of interesting things and you're well positioned to do some unique stuff going forward. So think about what the next 10 to 20 years of your career looks like and how you want to define that and come back to school and do a doctorate. And your research question should be geared towards whatever that next 10 to 20 year phases mm -hmm. of your career. And so with my background as, you know, being a a vocal critic of some of the things that happened in the industry, having been a financial advisor before. This is why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> uh, product development, uh, know a lot of advisors, know a lot of consumers, and so on and so on. It just felt like a natural fit that my question, my research question should be, what is the value of financial advice? Mm -hmm. And more specifically, it is quantifying the value of financial advice across different delivery channels, mm -hmm. specifically in Canada, although there is applicability in other jurisdictions as well. So so that's the gist of the research question. And if you take a look at the literature review, which is where you start with your research, what I found very quickly was the academic body of knowledge and the practitioner body of knowledge had both identified a gap mm -hmm. in the literature that existed. The academic world is very portfolio centric, tons of great papers looking mm -hmm. at what is the value of financial advisors with respect to 
portfolio choices, yep. diversification, rates of return, all that stuff. The stuff that can get in the data, in the weeds of the data with. Yeah, and they can yeah. run regressions till they turn oh, they, blue in the face. They and they love, love it. That. They love they it, love yes. It. Yeah. yeah. Which is great, but contemporary financial advice has evolved constantly and always mm -hmm. will. And it had evolved to the point from securities to portfolio to wealth management mm -hmm. and now also integrating behavioral economics. So the wealth management aspect is where the practitioner journalists had focused in on and saying, hey, listen, you know, the value proposition has changed, here are all the things that you should do, so on and so forth. But there was no framework for measuring all the stuff outside of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So for our research, it was kind of two, two parts and ongoing, I should say. The first part was developing a framework for measuring the value of advice. And then once you had developed that, use that to actually then measure the value mm -hmm. of advice across these different delivery channels. And to make a long story short, we looked at a number of different ways of slicing the data and, and analyzing this question. And one was to use a diff and diff approach to mm -hmm. get at causality as mm -hmm. opposed to just correlation. There's lots of studies that I'm sure you're familiar with that say, if you have an advisor, you got more money and- Yeah, well, that's just too simple. Cause again, I've, I've criticized, I've never met a study that I, you know, sorry, I've never met a survey that I liked. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, that's, there's a selection bias there. First of all, yeah. you likely have money to pursue an advisor and B, you basically, well, that's basically what it comes down to. You have money to, to, to pursue an advisor and B, enough money to attract the advisor. Exactly. So is that really a fair assessment? Right. So again, we really want to get more at causality. So what a different diff study does is it allows you to look at the difference in the score. So that score being sort of this index we created for financial well-being. So we want to see what the difference is in that score over time, depending on the different channel of advice that you go to. Everything from full service to do it yourself and everything in between, robos, etc. And so this will help sort of tease apart the causality. And so we also ask questions like, well, how much money did you have before you started this mm -hmm. relationship? And what suite of services did they offer? And who was really responsible for how much you were saving into those plans? Was it you came to the advisor and said, hey, I've got a thousand bucks I want to save? Or was it an advisor said, you really need to be saving a lot more? Yeah. Who was responsible for the actual behavior? Yeah. Did they help you tax plan to get the refunds to basically to bank that? So yeah, who triggered it? Right, exactly. So that that is the, the research sort of methodology in a very, very simple nutshell. And from that was born money gaps because as we started to look at how can we commercialize this? It became very clear when we were showing some sample dashboards of some outputs based on the inputs we were gathering of what you could show. A lot of advisors saw it said, we would pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> and so after you know a few people saying, I said, well, I should build it. Hence, money gaps. There you go. So before we dive into that, let's talk about the academic side of this, because I think there's some, something to be said there. I mean, first off, I think you're trying to address the, the key issue, which I think a lot of these papers fall down on, which is the compared to what problem, right? right. Like someone comes in, you look at Vanguard's um, Advisor Alpha paper, for yeah. instance, right? And I can't remember what they attribute, like 70 basis points, the difference between active and passive management, say if they take you from active and put you in passive, then guess what? You get 70 basis points compounded in perpetuity, to which I make two statements. How long can we really take credit for a decision and B, what if they come in with that <laughs> that portfolio already? Right. Right. Like so some of it's like and and your Vanguard, let's be honest, it's a little bit self-serving, <laughs> you know, sure. valid point, but you know, coming from you guys. So the it's interesting. So you're looking at that is that is an incredibly, incredibly complex situation, right? Because I mean, I think what you're trying to if I'm wrong from what I've seen with money gaps, you've established like benchmarks of things of concerns, I would say, or priorities, and just 
benchmarking whether or not these concerns or priorities have been taken care of or not? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of where it's coming from? Yeah. So one of the challenges when we deployed some initial pilot surveys to validate the questions that we were sending out and also comparing that to interviewing people who took the surveys to see, hey, did you answer these questions the way that I intended for you to answer them? And no, the question was no. The answer was no, I should say. Oh, service. There was a lot of <laughs> a lot of questions where the information that we we're asking was just a bit too complex yeah. for the average financial consumer to answer accurately. And so that was a problem. So how many surveys did we deploy before we deployed the final one? I think it was three pilot surveys. And we reiterated and reiterated and validated until we got to a point where we were confident that the questions we asked was going to elicit responses that actually pertain to the questions we were trying to answer. So that was quite a process. And so in Money Gap, because I know you kicked the kicked the tires a little bit and looked at some of the different gaps that we analyze, we tried to come up with a way that allowed us to say, all right, compared to where you are in your financial journey, kind of controlling for like your income and other things, here's how you're faring compared to sort of like best practices. Mm-hmm. And so in the research, we are using what's uh, it's called a uh, multi-factor dynamically sensitive model. Let me break that down. So multiple factors just means that instead of just looking at, you know, rate of return on your portfolio, we're also looking at, do you have the right amount of disability insurance? Mm-hmm. Do you have the right life insurance coverage? Do you have an estate plan in place and so on and so forth? So each of those is a factor. And then the sensitivity comes into play. And the best example I use is with disability insurance. So with disability insurance, let's say you don't have disability insurance. That shouldn't drag down your score if you're 64 years old and everything else is got to be contextual. Yeah. yeah, because you're effectively self-insured. And yeah. if you were to become disabled at 64, it's not going to bankrupt you. Again, assuming everything else is taken care of. If you're 24 and you become disabled, you're screwed. And so the importance of your score on that factor is going to be sensitive to, you know, in that case, how much income you have left to earn over the rest of your life. When it comes to, say, for example, portfolio costs, it's not sensitive to age. It's sensitive to the size of your portfolio mm-hmm. because you can be 64 and just starting to save for the first time. And you can be 24 and just have inherited 10 million bucks. Yeah. And so a 3% MER on someone who's just starting to save, it's not even worth it. Yeah. It's like, let's, like why are we really going to hammer down a rounding error in your long-term goal. But yeah, 3% on 10, it's a lot of dollars. Right, exactly. So each of those factors has its own sort of sensitivity loading uh, coefficient. And then what that would allow us to do is to sort of normalize out of a score of 100. So I could go to anyone and say, all right, based on all these inputs, looking at eight or 10 different aspects of your finances, your number is 30. For people like you, you're Mm -hmm. in the 30th percentile. And I could go to someone else and say, and your number is 70. So once you have that starting number, ideally what you want to do is see how does that number change depending on the type of advice that they get. And the long and short of it is, if you took a a simple one-dimensional robo-advisory type platform that only looks at, say, asset allocation and handling the execution, Mm -hmm. they might increase your score on, say, a factor of portfolio construction and maximize that. Yeah, yep. it's a perfect portfolio for the amount of money that you put in there. But when it comes to saying, hey, listen, you carry 50 grand in credit card debt. Yeah. <laughs> How's that score doing? Right. Yeah. They may not they may not give you the advice that yeah. say, forget about saving, pay down the credit card debt, whereas a different channel might. So for ideally, a financial planner would come in and say, the first thing they say, listen, before we do anything, you need to create a game plan to tackle this credit card debt. Mm -hmm. And so they might increase someone's score on the credit card or the debt management factor. And they would have all these different factors where they make a movement in people's score along those factors. And so when you put that all into their overall normalized score out of 100, you might find that, yes, 
Some channels charge a lot more money, but they would deliver a lot more value once you have a measure for value. So that's what we're trying to see. So I haven't completed the analysis or ran all the regressions, but that is essentially what we're doing. And what I can say from some of the pilot studies and the qualitative interviews is yes, the people who are providing financial planning are providing really good value for the cost that they're charging. That's the challenge, the people providing financial planning, not the people who right. claim to provide it. That's yes, the challenge, that's right? That's another challenge, right? So yeah, I mean, it's what I like about it is you've done a very, very almost comp well, simplified, comprehensive look at all the different areas, key areas that we can provide advice in. Right. And it's interesting, your, your statement about proving that advice is being provided, and we'll talk about the quantity of that shortly, reminds me of a conversation I had with Rob Carrick, a well-known Canadian newspaper writer, who was talking about people who were writing into him saying that, hey, you know, we went from this advised model where we felt we were getting little service and went to a robo-advisor. And then we discovered that, you know what, yeah, low fees were nice, but we wanted more than that. We right. wanted the handholding. We felt that some of the things the person was doing for us, which wasn't much, but just that little bit, yep. we were missing that and we needed that. Right. And they were now looking for how do we find someone to provide us the most value for what it is we're doing. And what I like about your tool is it's kind of two-sided. It helps. It's a validation tool. Well, it's multi-sided. Validation tool. It's a, for the advisors, it's a proof tool for the clients and it's a great academic tool for, for proving out what the actual value is. So how much am I worth? <laughs> <laughs> What's the evidence pointing towards? I'm yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you kind of touched on a couple of points there that I want to expand on. Sure? And one is that problem that the Rob's readers identified. And I saw, I think he had written a column on that he specifically. Did, yeah. And I thought, this is exactly what Money Gaps is designed to solve for. Yep. It is not going to replace, you know, like Navaplan or Conquest, which is upcoming, I believe. Shh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or some of the other really sophisticated cash flow analysis, complex software out there, which are great. Mm -hmm. But not everyone, again, wants necessarily that whole planning experience. And when they're ready, they're going to love that stuff. But for the most part, there are a lot of people who just want something that tells them, am I headed in the right direction so that when I am ready one day to get really yeah. serious about it, I know that I've done something now to position myself well for that. And so the financial planning experience is not a fun experience. When we tested with financial consumers, so we ran a number of yeah. design sprints to try and figure out what are the pain points in the advice relationship. Onboarding. Oh my God. <laughs> Onboarding. Yeah. Oh, Onboarding yeah. is number one. Uh, prospecting, compliance. And yep. then there were a lot of uh, newer advisors, you know, like five years and under who really said, you know, we're, there is some intimidation factor for some of the software out there. It takes a long time to learn. Yeah. Mastery takes time. Mastery takes time. And if you get things wrong, which is easy to do, you move one decimal place over and the plan looks, oh, wow, you're going to retire next year. Yeah. Right? You know, so, you, you, com you compound a small amount over an entire <laughs> lifetime and it's, it's a big, a deal, big right? difference. It's a yeah. big deal. And then they found like, hey, even if we do master it, we put all this time into it. We produce these great plans, all these charts and analyses and, and what have you. And the client said, can you just like summarize that in one page? Because I'm not going to read that. And so well, it's funny you say that because it's, um, I can't remember who said to I mean, it's like, you know why we do executive summaries? Because, no, you know why we do financial plans? Because the client doesn't trust the executive summary, <laughs> but they don't want to read the financial plan. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, as I tell, you know, like in my process, the presentation of it is 10 slides, eight of them pictures, 
two of them bullet points. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is how you're yeah. going to accomplish it. Yeah. Right. But you got to be able to back it up. Well, this is the thing, right? Like the ref I always refer to it as the distillation process. We yeah. do all this wicked, crazy, complex stuff in this giant still, and it spits out into the bottle that is the financial plan. And the only thing the client wants is you're not going to there, sit there and swig down an entire bottle of scotch. <laughs> yes, you shouldn't. It's going to be the shot glass. The shot glass is what's going to satisfy you, right? Right. Yeah. Maybe a so couple you're, shots, you're a purveyor of fine single malt financial plans. That's it. Well, no, well, blends are good too. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that aspect people want uh, there's a i think there's a demand for a light planning experience mm -hmm. so again instead of that binary option where it's full planning or nothing or just product sales there's this huge market in the middle that wants some kind of light planning experience but i would also debate that that's partially friction right like yes. so it is yes. it is pain when i say onboarding we use digital solutions to try to onboard people but in canada there's a serious lack of data aggregation unlike the us where i've literally seen financial planning software packages where inside of inside of a couple minutes they're like they have all the data they could ever need and then all you really need is the qualitative stuff right you don't need the quant stuff anymore so you're so, really looking forward to open banking i god if i can <laughs> i you know i have a question about wishes at the end and you know what that is right at the top of my list um <laughs> I, i'm looking forward but i'm also not holding my breath in this country because i know i'll pass out and die before <laughs> it gets here so so let me move yeah. on to another aspect and that is when you take a look at product price compression over time yep. so with the explosion in indexing and etfs and access to information we've seen pricing pressures on the product side yes on the advice side we haven't seen as much innovation and yes there are advice yeah. only plans which is great yeah but relatively small part of the market, and in terms of innovation, it's not really new, it's just yeah. not. Well, we're starting to see retainer-based in Canada, which yep. is rare. In the US, it's, it's, it's much further along. Yep. I've actually know one advisor who's actually taken a percentage of income uh, mm -hmm. strategy. Again, super rare here, yeah. and better elsewhere. But yeah, you're right, there's been, and I will blame the embedded compensation on the lack of innovation, sure. when it's easy to basically just tuck it away and not think about it and everybody's charging it, you're not really controlling it, you don't have to think like a business owner. When you're out there having to justify yourself, you have to think about dollars in how you collect sure. them and value. But let's put on our think like a business owner hat and take a look at the landscape. So when mm -hmm. it comes to the advice side of, yep. uh, of costs, we've almost had this floor set by the robo-advisors for 50 basis points for asset allocation yep. and execution. That's a pretty high floor actually. And mm -hmm. so between that and what, one, one and a quarter for yep. you know human-based financial advisor. There's a lot of room in the middle for innovation there. And by innovation, I just mean someone to price somewhere at yeah, somewhere 60 to 75 feet. basis points for light planning, exactly. which is above asset allocation and below mm -hmm. like the full-blown planning experience. And I think that the mass market would be well served by something like that. So thinking ahead in terms of like what my dream scenario is for money gaps, it would be to help enable different models of compensation for advisors. And I think it would be very viable with something like a hybrid platform to have salaried advisors providing high volume light planning experiences mm -hmm. that drives down the cost of the advice component for the people who Aren't, aren't ready for the full planning yeah. experience and for the people that don't have a lot of money. Well, or can't afford it. That's the big issue, right? Yeah. I mean, I look at what I do. So I often make the argument that financial planning in its current state is not scalable. You look at the Dunbar number, you look at the amount of time it takes to do things. You just do the math on, you know, four quarterly checkpoints minimum with X number of clients. You just do the math on how many can meet per day, the prep time, everything else. And you're at a number that's basically hard pressed across a hundred household relationships, right? So if you're going to have a very high touch, high relationship, kind of we'll call it uh, almost white glove, 
love type approach to financial planning, which is more or less my practice in which I espouse to, I think there's a tremendous amount of value there. You're limited in how many people you can serve, right? right. And you're limited in that market size, right? And it's a kind of competitive market because that's where the mass, you know, the mass affluence of the, to the ultra high net worth are in that space. When you have that space below that, I agree with you. I think that there's, you look at the, we'll just use the young family, for instance, right? Young family just bought their first place. You know, they had their first kid. They have a laundry list of needs that aren't overly complex in most cases of their T4 employees, but they are vitally important, right? And they're often at a price point, they're often at an asset level where they can't get the proper access to the proper comprehensive planning, right? So if, yeah, if your little dream of your dream, your little dream, if your dream <laughs> of, of making this thing is an enabling factor to help provide for that kind of point in the middle where people can go from beyond just worrying about the one thing, the robo-investor, the robo-insurer, whatever it is, and get a kind of full comprehensive picture as I make these gestures with my hands that you can't see on the, <laughs> on the mic, I'm all for it because I, I think that that kind of advice, I, the more we can permeate advice down a chain, the happier I'll be and the better off this entire country will be, quite honestly. Yeah, and uh, we've chatted a little bit about this over email, but one of the things that we're trying to do with Money Gaps is to also make planning uh, or some better quality advice available for the people who truly have very little. Yeah. We're trying to build a fairly robust GIS calculator. Yes. Because as you know, and as uh, you probably know, John Stapleton. We're working with him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know that, you know, his view is that there's an upside down reality of financial planning for low income. It is crazy. Marginal it tax is. rates are like 70% yeah. at certain levels. And, and like, I'm saying this now and people who are listening or in the business. Yes, I am not kidding. If you are a GIS and lowest tax bracket in Ontario, 70 points, right? It's an upside down, backwards, poorly thought out system that we need to fix. And what happens is when you have a product sales focused channel that is used to dealing with people who have very little resources, if someone says, hey, should I put money into an RSP? And they're coming, they're saying, listen, I have low resources and I have found a way to find some money every month to put away for my future, yeah. which is a bigger deal for them for people who are higher Huge. income. And they say, yeah, here, put it into an RSP. That is bad advice, yep. right? But the thing is, all the literature is geared towards the opposite yes. of the spectrum. And, yeah. you know, my little pet project, which you'll all find about in a couple months, um, <laughs> is basically you know, working with John to basically say, like, let's fix this. Because I've talked to not-for-profit organizations who are the front lines of these things. And they've had advisors come in to thinking that they could help. Right. And then they hear these scenarios and they're just like, I don't know what to do. I've never seen this. Because you have to do a lot of disability planning. You have to do a lot of, like we said, the low income planning. Thinking your entire world's upside down. Yeah. So we're going to put out that calculator for free. Fantastic. Uh, so we're working on that. It takes a lot of testing because it's so complex. And the uh, number of clawbacks at that end of the spectrum is bizarre. <laughs> right. And so you can see the challenge. If you have some frontline employee who's like, you know, bank teller or someone that someone who is very low income would deal with, they don't have access no, to don't. that information and they're unknowingly providing bad information to people. So this, again, speaks to the value of financial planning, no matter who you are. And right now it's kind of relegated to the high end of the income yeah. spectrum. I mean, I always kind of tongue in cheek say things when people, when I say simple situations, right? Because right. I have yet to truly come across a simple situation. <laughs> situation. I'll get prospects saying, you know, my stuff's not complex. And then it's like, oh, but wait a sec, you, you, one of you self-employed and that other person's American. And, you know, there's like suddenly within five minutes, I've identified five major issues. Right. And it's like, look guys, I've yet to meet someone, you know, you know, it's simple, dead. Yeah. <laughs> no, not for the and people left that, behind. And even that yeah. sometimes can well, be exactly. not, not for the estate, <laughs> but for the person in the ground, that is simple. Right. <laughs> but now I can rest. Yes, now I can rest. I've left the work to everybody else. <laughs> right. Good. So 
It's it's interesting too. Like I'm I'm going to be very interested to see how the um, how the end result of your research pans out because as we said, you, you, the literature like is is like you said very polar, right? It's it's yeah. it's either it's either portfolio centric or the the industry stuff is. There's some good stuff in there, but sometimes it's you, not rigorous. It's not. It's it's definitely not rigorous. But the interesting thing that they both agree upon is that there are just some aspects of this relationship we cannot quantify. Right. Right. I mean, we can't. Can we really quantify the value of having enough disability insurance? In place until that person's disabled, right? And then the crazy stuff that we all go through, crazy stuff, the no, what's almost normal now, <laughs> the stuff that happens in people's lives that we get involved in. Like I get like someone calls me up, kids had a terrible accident, is freaking out because they don't know what to do about the disability claim. It's just like, no, go deal with the kid. I'll get the forms together. I'll take care of all. Like that peace of mind provided yeah. the just, just last week, a um, client's aunt passed away. They had no idea if she's dying in test state or not. She went when the, the person was an executor. So here's all these tools for getting through the executor work. Here's somebody you can outsource the work to mm-hmm. like just like oh my they're like just oh my god Jason thank you you should, you should be my first call right like right. It's just that level of stress relief you know it's enormous right so I don't know if you noticed but on your test money gaps account which I have open in front of me yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. on your third party recommendations or uh, referral network, I forget what it's called but yep. you can pre-populate a number of uh, professionals. professionals that you would normally work with and because one of the things that we found was where some of the advice falls apart is where the advisor does not have a direct role so there are many situations where people will say, hey, listen, I provide full you know, planning. I look at things holistically and you know, we'll look at your estate plan. They identify, hey, you don't have a will because 75% yeah. of people don't or it's out of date. And so you should get something done about that. Yeah. And no, then the, the, entire, the entire go talk to this person thing or you should look into this drives me nuts. Like I recently judged the Global Financial Planning Awards for well, the Canadian one. Yeah. And there was one report that I wanted. It was great advice. And then everything that was outside the realm was like, speak to this person, speak to this right. person. And she's like, you could have picked up a phone. Right. <laughs> like, And it's like, you know, this is... Uh, trust me, I know that because like in our practice, we help develop the estate plan before the lawyer gets involved. We book those meetings to make sure they happen because otherwise, left to their own devices, life yes. gets in the way. Exactly. And so one of the things that we're trying to solve for is reducing the friction mm-hmm. and getting those external components fulfilled. Are you going to nag them? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> yes. A little bit. Okay. So what we do is first off, when you go through the recommendations some of the gaps allow you to make a referral to a third party, like a lawyer. So I'll use mm-hmm. that as an example. So you can choose to click on that box and it says, refer this to the lawyer that's in your account as your designated mm-hmm. lawyer referral. And it will send an email to that lawyer to say, here is the client, you need to call them. It doesn't give any specific information other than how to contact them yep. to get the lawyer to follow up because they will follow up once they have the information, Good. the client won't. And there's also a refer your client button on their dashboard. So if you're just chatting, you're doing a review meeting, they say, yeah, we're thinking about selling your house or mm-hmm. they've entered in their mortgage information in money gaps, it will identify 90 days ahead of time. Hey, the mortgage is up for renewal. You want to send a referral to a mortgage broker mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's trying to help with all the stuff that the advisor doesn't necessarily do directly, but they are kind of responsible for the entire sort of financial picture. And they need to sort of take more ownership on those components. And so, like I said, we ran a couple of design sprints trying to pick apart both from the advisor perspective and the client perspective, the advice relationship and where it falls apart and where those pain points are. And reducing friction is a big challenge, like with onboarding, right? It's the friction reduction is so important for a good Yeah, You want to delay something, ask client to move three inches to the right. Like it really is. You know, we're, we're creatures of habit. You know, it's, it's enough to get them in for a meeting and they're going to go home and deal with everything else they got to deal with. Right. So, you know what? One thing we didn't do, let's go through the actual experience onboarding from the advisor and client perspective. Sure. Yeah. So I signed up for your for your uh, your service. 
Tell me about what it is I see and how I interface with the clients and then what I get back. Sure. So the first thing you want to do, uh, starting from beginning to end, is you want to find people to provide value to. Mm -hmm. So you have a customized link that you include on your, your website, your e-newsletter, Twitter bio, whatever, and a prospect probably a cold prospect to begin with, would click on it. And it's it takes them through a 15 question, takes about 90 seconds to complete survey. And it's a simple yes, no, I don't know to a number of areas relating to someone's personal financial situation. Do you have a will? When was the last time you checked your credit report? Have you had a, an insurance needs analysis? What would happen if you were to become disabled? You know, mm -hmm. sort of, you know, do you have a state plan? So it identifies very quickly. And this was designed to help shift the mindset that financial advice is about just investing or just mm -hmm. insurance. It is holistic in nature. Absolutely. So it is designed to shift the mindset of the prospect to show where the value and advice is and that it's holistic. So that is the prospecting sort of function. And there are other functions to that. For example, generating referrals from existing clients. Hey, do you like what I do? Send them this link and, you know, I'll give them a free sort of uh, chat or call and talk about them. So that's component one. Component two is the actual analysis. So again, the theme is simplicity. We created a report card system. So you get a grade for every category of personal finance. Uh, love letter grades are easy to remember or right? easy to understand. Yeah, you don't need to explain it, right? And you get an overall GPA. Yeah, no one likes a C <laughs> or worse. So you can start with any gap that you determine is appropriate or that the client, you know, they light up about talking. Well, maybe they don't light up, but they get interested in talking about their debt situation. So you start there, mm -hmm. you do a debt analysis. And each gap has sort of the same protocol. So what happens is you have an input screen. Uh, you enter in the inputs relevant to calculating the score for a particular particular gap. You click the analyze gap button and immediately you get sort of a visual representation that explains, all right, why, mm -hmm. here's your score. Why did you get this score? And so it provides some sort of intelligence to discuss with the client. All right, so here's the rationale behind it. Then you have the recommendation section and there are some pre-populated options for different gaps. So, you know, debt recommendations are going to be different than the retirement recommendations, et cetera. And as the advisor, you would choose, you would tick off those boxes. What applies? What advice do I want to give to this person right now? Mm -hmm. And then there's a custom note section. So whatever, if there's something custom, you'd add that in. You can also override their grade because as you know, there's so many educated, you can't capture everything. No. So 95% <clears throat> of the time, the grade that's spat out is probably going to be just fine, but you can override and put whatever grade you want. Now, here is a critical component in the client advisor journey, you have a decision point. So you've walked to the, the client with the inputs and the recommendations. Now they have to choose. Are you going to accept my recommendations and fix this gap? Are you going to decline them? Or are you going to ask for you know seven days to think about it? Whatever they do, they have to choose one of those options. And this gets time stamped in the client journal. When they make one of those options, uh, you're probably familiar, many of your listeners are probably familiar that in the insurance business, you are now required to provide a reason why letter mm -hmm. for your recommendations. And so we automatically generate the reasons why letter, not just for insurance, but for every gap, because mm -hmm. we thought, you know, this kind of makes sense. You're providing a one page reason for yeah. your recommendation. Recommendations should be justified at all times. Right. You're providing this one page document that says very in plain language, here is the score that you got. Here's why you got that score. Here is the recommendation. And here is your choice. You chose to accept it, decline it, or think about Which it. Which is always great because you will have the clients who basically, for whatever reason, just do not want to take you up on the recommendation, right? right. So life insurance, they're like, I hate insurance, but there's a half million dollar gap. Right. Look, man, it's going to score you as a D, yeah. but you've made a choice and we have the record that you decided to opt out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So it generates a PDF on the spot. 
Ideally, I think you should print it off and have the client sign it. Uh, you can also send it electronically, yep. but you should ideally have the client sign it, keep that one in your record. So let's say that they decline your recommendation. For for example, life insurance. They die, their partner comes to the firm a year later saying, I'm suing you guys because I'm broke because you didn't make a recommendation for life insurance. And you would just yep. go to the client journal, which is timestamped and say, well, yeah. actually here it is. And here's the signature and they declined it. And we gave them all the reasons why they needed this insurance. Yep. So that's the compliance function as well. And you can pull that up anytime. And you would go through gap by gap with the same process. And as you do that, you get a grade for every gap and the overall GPA gets updated. And then what you don't see, but our full launch is September 1st, but we're taking on clients now. And uh, there's some features that we're adding on an overall report card. So we're gonna have a snapshot where you can generate a report card, that gives them all the gaps and their grades at a point in time. And then you'll be able to measure that. So year over year, you can see here was your GPA, you know, when yeah. we first started and here is the GPA now, all the things that we did. Because what you want to do is demonstrate that value. Not only provide value, but As demonstrate. As a borderline lifetime student, I kind of get that. Um, <laughs> but also what I love about it is anytime you do something like that, you gamified it, right? Right. And it's, you know, it's one thing to, it's one thing to get a C in calculus in school. It's something else to get an, a C in life preparedness. Right. You know, like, we'll just call you the adulting score. And frankly, <laughs> you're not, uh, you know, you don't want to be at that level, right? So especially when you have other people in your life that you're taking care of, right? So Right. And then again, and this is a feature that will be built in um, hopefully before September 1st, but, and this is the nagging feature. I and love so, nagging features. Yeah. And so let's say that you've run someone through a life insurance analysis and they've accepted your recommendation. It will mark the gap as not closed until you deliver the policy. Hmm. If they've decided, well, I'm going to take seven days to think about this. It will remind you, you know, so-and-so has, you know, two days left to make yep. a decision. You need to follow up with them. And if you have 10 people today are within 90 days of their mortgage coming up for renewal, you should do something to follow up with them to see if there's an opportunity there. Because you always want to be providing value and you're always looking at different touch points. So that's sort of the money gaps experience in a nutshell. It is a... a it's almost like an operating system for planning. Like literally you've created yeah. like... Here are the key things. And if you, you have to go through all these key things and essentially, you know, I struggle for the term. It's not a CRM. It's not, a, it's, it's, yeah. not it's kind of, it's an experience <laughs> manager essentially, right? So, yeah. but you know, you go through, if you're diligent enough to literally go through each one of these gaps with every client and provide, provide valuable advice on all those. I mean, frankly, you've, you've done a wonderful service. And secondly, you've proven your value to the client beyond a shadow of a doubt. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the challenge because there's a lot of people who are questioning the value of advice. Right. But rightly so. I mean, like so often for so long, the value of advice is, well, I'm going to pick the best mutual fund, which right. <laughs> has been academically disproven more times than anyone can count. And uh, to the point where they just stop publishing papers on it. Um, <laughs> and, and frankly, if we, especially if we, if we now set a floor at 50 basis points in Canada, and it was a, closer to 30 in the US, there was a mm -hmm. paper that came, I'm pretty sure you probably saw it, was what are you doing for your 30, what are you doing for your 70 basis points, right? right? So frankly, if you're not providing value beyond that of a robo-advisor, you've got a reason to be scared, yeah. right? And I often see advisors get almost vehemently upset at the existence of robos. And it's like, what a big surprise. Someone's coming in to undercut like undercut something that you're doing that can be systemized. It's right. going to happen. So what are you doing for that other slice of the pie? And frankly, if you are the one of the people who's even, I will say this much, even if you are providing a lot of value, sometimes it is hard to articulate that right. in a manner like you've done, which I think is exceptional. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. No, I, I thought we have some definitely things to talk about, about how I think we can, we can take this together. <laughs> so, so, oh, so. I'm interested. Yes. I'll, uh, yes. I'll get the scotch and we can do some blue sky. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> sweet. So some questions to wrap, that we always wrap up with. And sure. uh, so the wish question, 
is specific to, and you already partially answered this, but <laughs> if you had one wish about something you can change with your product or the industry or company as a whole, what would it be? So in terms of what the product will hopefully change, mm -hmm. um, like I said, creating innovation in the advice component of costs that financial consumers bear. I think this opens up the opportunity for high volume, light financial planning experiences, which is going to target a lot of people who are left in that void between product sales and the full sort of planning mm -hmm. experience. So I think that's actually a massive market there. In terms of other things I would like to see that would help Money Gaps do a better job, and quite frankly, a lot of people do a better job, is the mm -hmm. open banking initiatives. Um, <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I met with finance about that, and we were sharing some ideas. And I said, you know, there's a lot of things in terms of like reg tech that you could do compliance, looking at recommendations, like you can quickly identify, hey, we've got someone who's 90 years old and they've got a 90% equity portfolio. The elder abuse situations we can prevent with. Exactly. It, the, like, I, you know, in that, I mentioned this interview previously, but in the conversation with Sean Brayman where we, uh, previously where we talked about deregulation of, of open banking, and we just started like talking about all the different ways that that could open up markets we never even conceived of. Right. Like you have, you could, you could have a small corner store offer financing based on, you know, the ability to scan open banking data with the consent of the consumer and provide their own financing. It's just, you know, you start thinking about how many, how many different ways this can improve people's lives. Yep. It's enormous. I think that there's a lot of confusion. So for the people who are against open banking, there is read access and there's write access. Mm -hmm. And I'm 100% exactly. guaranteed that if it gets rolled out in Canada, and it probably will, it'll be read-only access. And at least to start. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely benefit to write access, but that is got a, that's a higher bar to achieve. Yes. Yeah. And there are so many opportunities. Like, second opinion services that you could generate in a heartbeat based on, hey, listen, give me access, you know, with a token, high security, and we'll tell you if there are opportunities here. And I think one of the big problems is that a lot of the incumbents feel that they own the data and not the client. Despite the fact legislation says otherwise, but go on. <laughs> right. And so there's going to be a lot of pushback. But yes, while they're simultaneously offering their own data aggregators, right. and while saying that they're voiding your fraud protection if you use another data aggregator, yeah. that's a defendable position. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there are some challenges yeah. for sure, but I think that open banking opens up a lot of opportunities. It's not going to solve all our problems, but I think it will help with the innovators who are out there to create new solutions and find new ways to help people. They also create new ways to hurt people as well. So, hey, there's no 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 technology that's ever been created that's been that's been 100% benevolent. Like right. you know, we nuclear bombs and nuclear power are two different things. <laughs> and this is an extreme example. All right. So, what has been the biggest challenge in getting to where you are today with money caps the software development side the testing has been i had some experience in university as a system level software tester during my summer terms and stuff so i know how tedious that is <laughs> and that's a real responsibility i think the big challenge has been trying to find the balance between how far do we go in terms of customization in terms of the inputs and providing meaningful data that is actionable. So yeah. here's what I mean by that. I realized that we were going down the road where we we're kind of starting to compete with the more complex financial planning solutions out there. And that Not was a your problem. Market. Yep. It would take a lot more money to do that. Mm -hmm. And the incumbents are doing well. Uh, there's new ones popping up all the time. And it just became more and more clear that there is a much bigger market for the light planning experience. And so that mind shift took a bit of... To swim to the blue ocean took a little bit of convincing? Yeah. yeah. So, so so part of the problem was, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek and I wanted to get knee deep into the numbers and stuff like yeah. that. And then I realized, no, there's a much bigger opportunity in convincing people to see 
the opportunity there. I thought was going to be a big challenge. It is proving to be a challenge. I think eventually people are starting to come around and see that there is this opportunity here. Things are becoming more clear, but early on, it's you're just a, an incredible learning machine, you know, yep. trying to figure out the landscape and the data costs uh, on the service side. That caught me off guard, mm. but we we caught that nip that in the butt. I think we've got a solution for that. So it's going to say a little operational to market also. Excellent. And what's the last, this is the last question. What excites you the most about what you're working on? Like what gets you up every morning ready to keep going at this? Because as I always say, entrepreneurship is like basically opting into being bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. It's a question that I've talked to Dan Hallett about all oh, yeah. the time. Over the years we get together, we chat and we always come back to this one point and that is Someone comes to us and says, hey, I've got a million bucks, five million bucks. Can you help me find an advisor or solution? Relatively easy. Yeah. Someone comes to you and says, I've got 50 grand. Can you help me find someone? That is a lot harder. I've luckily started to fill that gap in my life, but it's few and far between. Yeah. And even so, and I basically say, like, I always say to them, look, if that's more than you think you can spend or that's more than you think you can, you need, then I'll point you at a robo-advisor for now. But that's really what you need to go to in the future. And yeah, so there's still this this gap like again no pun intended there's a gap <laughs> well named now i get it but yeah exactly it's it's not easy yeah and so that's what gets me up in the morning is the idea that all these people who up until now were getting you know product sales without a lot of any sort of financial planning that was available for kind of reserve for higher net worth families mm -hmm. they're now going to be able to get that's what gets me excited is providing financial planning to more people. Not full-blown financial planning, but some light financial planning experience. I think this market is going to explode. The hybrid mm -hmm. channels, there's going to be tons of investment in there, both human-centric hybrid models mm -hmm. and digital-centric hybrid models with human assistance. So there's going to be, yep. they're going to meet in the middle at some point, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and um, last week's, well, <laughs> these are always recorded in advance, but the early June interview with Ron Carson, um, to listen to his situation, he's trying to, you know, they've always serviced the high-end market very quite well, but his kind of hope or goal is literally if you're starting from the first dollar, he wants that firm to be able to take you on right. and then graduate you up the chain as necessary and down the chain and then be able to adjust the service offering based on your needs at different times in life and whatnot. It's a big challenge and we've yet to get there. And of course, everything polarizes around the big dollars, but there's a, like you said, there's a much bigger market of underserved people. So let's uh, hopefully you're going to help fill that gap. Fingers crossed. Yep, the fingers crossed. Thank you yet again. <laughs> hey, it was my pleasure, even though you only gave me water. <laughs> I have employees. I have liability to <laughs> Well, so. when you come on my podcast, yes. it'll be free flowing, or do we have to pass that oh, well, compliance? Well, we got, no, I will, I'll get the waiver signed, but it's fine. <laughs> anyway, thanks again, Preet. My pleasure. So that was my interview with Preet Banerjee. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Clearly, we get along quite well and see eye to eye. And with that, as always, I am Jason Pereira, and this is Fintech Impact. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.